speaking of big words, you know what? I'm delighted now to welcome to the show Stephen Fry. Good morning, Stephen. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, Brendan. Now, Stephen, you're a man of, of broad range, but I don't think anyone could have predicted this. Your new book is about your collection of ties. It does seem rather preposterous. I'm the first to admit that uh, uh, on on the surface, it does seem a rather strange idea for anyone. But um, it came about really because of lockdown. Uh, I, like many people, obviously was forced to look around me in the house and sort things out, do the usual cliché nonsense of banana bread and sourdough and all that sort of thing. But also, uh, emptying drawers, I saw this huge number of ties that over the years I had bought. And so I photographed one and popped it on Instagram and talked about the the fashion house from which this particular tie came. And the next day, another one, and so on throughout the lockdown. And it it seemed to attract a a, a terrific following of of likes and so on. Uh, Many of them saying, oh, you should turn this into a book. And I didn't think much more about it. I finished the series as the lockdown ended. And uh, my publishers agreed that it would be a good idea for a book. And I know it's not really just about ties. Part of it is... Indeed, the history of the extraordinary object that we wrap around our throats sometimes. Um, but it's also a very personal journey of, into my youth and when I was, you know, excited by the idea of dressing up and so on. But also the fact that when, when I travel and over the past 40 years or so, I've been lucky to travel all around the world and various duties. And um, I always buy a tie wherever I am. It's, it's a great memento of a place. Um, and they're some of them surprisingly different. You know, you get sort of waxy batik ties in the Southeast Asia, for example, and um, and obviously very amazing designer ones in Paris or Milan or wherever. Uh, and, you know, just as a hint to anybody, they're a brilliant thing to take as a, a regular memento because they're so light. You can just shove them in of your luggage. They're course. there, unlike uh, books and bottles and things. Uh, or I had my first agent, who was a marvellous old gentleman, he had this enormous, like a sort of aquarium filled with matchbooks because he collected matchbooks wherever he travelled. But, of course, no one does that anymore. But in the old days, every hotel, every yes, restaurant, yes. everything had, had its own matchbook. But anyway, so, um, yeah, Okay, they, they so, so, little, so they're packets of memory as well as yes, uh, exactly. style and so on. Exactly, yeah. and and you and you do use them a, 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 as you said as a lens to go back to your own childhood and and your youth. It, it kind of started in your childhood, didn't it? Because you came into possession of uh, a box of your grandfather's collars and and ties and things, wasn't it? That's exactly right, and I'm sure some of your older listeners will will probably have had a similar experience. You know, a man of that generation dies and some of his things go to his family members, of course, furniture and so on. Most clothing one doesn't keep, but things like those collar boxes, leather collar boxes my grandfather had, and every man had really, and they kept their collars in them, obviously. And collars were separate in those days and not stitched onto the shirt, which was considered a wild modern idea and so I got very excited by this in the way that you know a young teenager does get excited by very retro things mm-hmm. you know 
have godchildren and nephews and nieces who get thrilled by wind-up gramophones and uh, old typewriters and, and old rotary telephones and things like that because it does you know it's there's something very exciting about it. it's a bit like steampunk or something but a slightly later version and so I would I grew up in the East Anglia in Norfolk and in the countryside but I'd get a bus into Norwich and walk up and down in a three-piece suit with a gold watch chain and <laughs> stiff collar and tie looking like ten types of idiot. Yeah. But somehow that was my way of expressing myself. You know, yeah. others yeah. others were much more rock and roll or mod and, and others would go emo or goth or something in later generations. But I think there is there are a lot of young people who just like to be different and sometimes the difference is not being part of a particular subculture in music and, and youth fashion, but can be going back to an earlier age and just enjoying. And there's a big thing in vintage clothing these days. Yeah, absolutely. There? But you, so you, are, you are less than flattering about your, about your teenage self, though, um, uh, <laughs> parading around. <laughs> well, I think if I might have seen myself, uh, <laughs> I would have thought, what? Excuse the language, <laughs> uh, because it really, you know. Uh, but but, and I don't think of myself as having been particularly brave, as I say in the book. Yet I suppose it took a certain amount of courage to yeah. stand out like that. And you know, for a time I had a cane as well, a sort of walking cane, and uh, I did try a monocle even, which you know that's how, that's how <laughs> low, low I sang. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't really get it to fit in the eye properly, so that's probably a blessing. It certainly but, yeah, is. They, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah you I'm call just... yourself. Uh, you liken yourself to a teenage lord snooty, and and I, I, you also you you write about that. You you actually rejected a lot of the cultural fads of of the modern world in general. You kept it quite old school in your cultural taste too, didn't you? Yes, I did. I mean, my brother and um, all of my friends were deeply into Jethro Tull and what was, you know, what's these days known as prog rock, you know, that that sort of thing and the buying albums and talking about that. And I, you know, I didn't absolutely turn my back on all modern music, but I would buy records of music hall comedians and radio comedy. So I would buy, you know, there would be these old figures like Rob Wilton and, uh, you know, Northern comics like that, George Roby. Sandy Powell, and long forgotten names by most people, yeah. uh, Mabel Constandurus. <laughs> I would learn off their monologues and, and perform them in the dormitory to, uh, to the other boys who thought I was completely nuts, I think. But I just, <laughs> you know, for me, I suppose language was more important. Uh, I just loved the comedy. I loved the way different comedians used language to, to elicit a, a laugh uh, as a language, as a, as a way of tickling people and uh, as no, I suppose because I was so bad at everything else. I was bad at sport. I was I couldn't run in a straight line or catch a ball. I couldn't, you know, and, and I, I wasn't musical. I couldn't dance or sing or play an instrument particularly well. So all I had was words yeah. and, and and you know, a style, I suppose you'd call it. And so I was attracted to dandies, Oscar Wilde, Noel Coward, Bro Brummel, those sorts of people. And maybe somewhere deep in the in a part of myself, I recognised there was also a suggestion of being an outsider as my sexuality, which wasn't a word I would have used or anything, but I was aware that I was perhaps different from others and that these kinds of people who took trouble over their dress and were stylish and funny and used wit, wit and style, um, 
I suppose something about them appealed to me and I felt and, that they were And Stephen, was it nothing more than, than unconscious? You weren't consciously aware that, that you know, this is possible. Not till later. I am, yeah. How later? Yeah, not till much later. I think it was unconscious, yeah, yeah. And how much later would you say? Probably when, by the time I was 17 and I'd read enough by that time to know, you know what the world was and what the story of these people that I so admired were, was. People like Oscar, of course, who was you know, my all-time hero. Um, and uh, the sadness of his story, the sacrifice and the misery with which he ended. And I imagine, as a lot of gay people did when they read the story of Wilde, that that would be their ending too. There was still police to be involved if you ever tried to enact your desires there were there were you know there was ostracism and exile and shame and expulsion and a general sense that you were you know unnatural filthy and not to be tolerated um that was very very strong and so one imagined okay. that would be one's destiny and if if anyone had a bit of pride you tried not to skulk in corners, feeling ashamed, but to, for me to own it by connecting myself to figures like Oscar, mm. I suppose. Oscar was, you know, he first became famous because of the way he dressed as much as the way he spoke. The, the, the silk leggings and the velvet and the, and, and the sunflower or the, um, you know, the green carnation in, in his lapel. Um, and that, that was his first, even before he was aware of his sexuality, probably. Yeah. Um and so it, it is there is a connection between that. But of course it's not a necessary one. The great thing about ties is they, they cover the whole rainbow of human and cultural um, you know, being. So there are ties that denote regiments and uh, uh, clubs, uh, you know, or colleges and schools. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. You know, and people who know see, ah, look at that blue stripe. So he went to Eton, did he? Or, oh, that's, is that, what's that? That's not a, no, that's a very minor, <laughs> you know, it's a terrible snobbery. And, yeah, you know, yeah. Well, it did strike me, though, reading it. And look, you've brought us back to the safer ground of ties, so we'll talk about ties. It did strike yeah. me reading it that, you, you you do have one foot in that kind of establishment world, though a little bit, don't you? You you're a, you 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 might be what we would describe as a clubbable kind of person yourself, in a way. You are slightly establishment in a strange way. Yes, and I I have indeed become so, having always felt outside. Yeah. It. I noticed I was inside. <laughs> that I, you know, it, it it's a peculiar thing that, um, and. That's that feeling. It's not exactly imposter syndrome, or, or but there is a feeling of not belonging really, of being a bit of a fraud. And so, whenever I'm invited to join a club, or there is a club I I can join, I join it. So I'm a member of an enormous number of clubs. It's ridiculous because <laughs> I still can't quite believe that they've accepted me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's pathetic, really, but it is you know, <laughs> as part of being. It's that outsideriness, and a lot of people have it. I'm, I'm not unique in that. Goodness yeah. knows, yeah. a lot of yeah. them feel, you know. And, and but they, but but you're showing them all in the end. They want you in their club now, and that that's a, I guess, a certain yes. satisfaction in that. <laughs> I feel you more and slightly, Stephen. Do you how everything has become a little bit more casually dressed these days? Well. I mean, I do, but I mean, the last thing I want to be is some old old figure just sort of telling people, <laughs> oh, it's a shame, no standards anymore, no standards at all, it's a disgrace. I, I don't feel that. I just like myself 
dressing up a bit. So I still can't help it. If I go to the theatre, I'll always wear a jacket and tie. And, you know, even for a first night now, nobody does. When I first went to, you know, press nights of plays and things, it would be dinner jacket, um, black tie, you know, black bow yeah, tie yeah, for the, yeah. and, and long dresses for the for, for the women. And um, now everybody's just in jeans. And a, a lot of it is is from America that uh, say that, you know, the grand hotels, the five-star hotels, you know, your Savoys and Claridges and Connaughts and things, they always insisted that men wore ties when they were in the building. But by the 1980s and early 90s, when, you know, Steven Spielberg and Ron Howard and, you know, these younger d directors who were huge power players in Hollywood and therefore no hotel would ever want to throw them out or tell them how to dress. And they would arrive in scruffy jeans and baseball caps and, you know, a T-shirt. And you can't say put a tie over a T-shirt. So you just, they bit their lips and said, well, that's that's now how people dress. And yeah, and of course, and, and as you point out, then that prefaced the age of the uh, kind of Silicon Valley culture and everything as well, where it's kind of puddies and all that kind of thing now. Um, I, I do not feel that the pandemic, which pressed fast forward on so many things, could really be the end of the ties and the end of dressing up. I mean, basically everyone seems to go around now in tracksuits or leggings and puffy jackets and, and, and they're comfortable like that now, aren't they? Well, it's true, but there's always a pushback, isn't there, Brendan? So <clears throat> it's, it means, I think, that very careful and beautifully curated photographs of old furniture and old ways of dressing. There are a lot of Instagram stars who dress up in, you know, 19th century or 18th century costume or in, um, you know, mid, mid, mid-century, 20th century wear. Um, and huge popularity of Stanley Tucci and the director Paul Feig doing cocktails, um, you know, which are exquisitely detailed with these, you know, oil of celery or whatever, you know, yes, really, yes. you know, really, um, and people love that, the detail and the, you know, that you can't get more analog than some of these things. You want wood and brass and varnish and proper things, you know, silk and satin and, you know, um, because the rest of the world is so digital and so exchangeable, so fungible to use a popular word these days. Um, and, uh, and these old things aren't. They, they they belong to something else. And one can play with them and one can belong to them. And uh, it's not being snobbish or being, you know, retrograde or, or, or anything. It's it's delighting in our past as well as our as well as our present and future. You know, the two things don't cancel each other out. You can you can mix and match, I guess that's the point, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I'm taking it you did not let sartorial standards slip during the <laughs> lockdown. Did you I, get fully dressed every morning, even if it was just a smoking jacket? I must be perfectly honest and say there were days when I basically wore tracksuit bottoms and a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I was right a but usually if I had to do something, uh, you know, on social media or, you know, do a, do a little video for some reason or another, I then made sure my top half. Was yeah, yeah, big. yeah. From the waist up anyway. Yeah. Stephen, on, on broader matters, you, you're a great advocate for mental health. And I saw mm. recently that you've been calling for more help for young people who might have had their mental health impacted mm. by the pandemic. Do you think that a, there's a lot of damage been done to that generation? I fear there may be, yes, I, I fear. I mean, already before anyone had ever heard of, uh, of COVID-19, there was um, 
there was a, uh, another kind of epidemic going on, and that was an epidemic of self-harm amongst the young. Uh, self-harm, uh, uh, you know, cutting and, and, uh, and, and really causing pain, physical pain to themselves right up to the worst and most terminal kind of self-harm, of course, suicide. A real, a real problem in all sections of society. I mean, I go talk to schools quite a lot and, you know, it, it, it's not just kids with, you know, alcoholic parents or absent parents or, you know, real problems at home and, um, and those sort of things who, who take to self-harm. It, it, it can be kids from very comfortable middle-class homes as well. It's just this whole sweep, something in the, that generation is Do you, is do you think it's, a, is it harder for these kids now than it was for you or for me? It, both harder and easier. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's easier because you know there are there's so much more awareness of it that you know I, I should have been uh, diagnosed as ADHD when I was young. I mean my disruptive behaviour and my appalling behaviour really got me expelled from three schools. You know, mm. and it was just it was just considered a moral weakness. He was just a bad person, a yeah. disruptive influence, and and I was disruptive. But I'm I know it wasn't. That's kind of wickedness, <laughs> you know. I wasn't. It was some strange storms inside me that now are called ADHD and maybe called something else in a couple of years. But it is at least now recognised. So you can talk about it now, and there is more attention paid to it. Better pastoral care at schools, less hierarchical discipline, and um, you know, less bullying and so on. But on the other hand, there's more pressure, infinitely more pressure through social media and through all kinds of other things. There, people's lives are, um, they hold them up to themselves as, as being a failure. You know, you hear of people self-harming simply because they didn't get enough likes. And, and you know, this is very distressing because what we're talking about is, is deep unhappiness somewhere. And... It's no good saying, well, well, they've got music, 24-hour music on call can be streamed, films and TV can be streamed, games. They've got everything they possibly need. They've got a roof above their heads. They've probably got enough food, most of them. Um, and what are they complaining about? Well, you know, it's... it's unhappiness and mental unease is it's like saying to someone what's his body looks all right why is he screaming in pain well because you can't see it but his arm is broken you yeah, know yeah. It's, it's it's the same it's, there are a lot of people with who feel very broken inside and it's it's very it's hard to know but it is essential that they have services available to them that places where they can feel safe to talk and to express themselves and and to try and get advice and mentoring and uh, you know, from people who've been there themselves and, uh, from, you know, that their friendship is, you know, give friendship is given to them and so on. And, and that does take resources. And, but, but it's a false economy not to, not to pay up front. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure the same is, is true around the world. You know, it's not just to Britain and Ireland and, uh, um, you know, the so-called West. It, it's, it, it seems to be perhaps more talked about here, but there's a lot of suicide all around the world at the moment, and it's horrifying. And tell me, in terms of you, so you obviously have have you've got a diagnosis down the years, mm. and you obviously get the get the whatever help and treatment you require and everything. Does that mean that you're quite robust? Or say now the last two years has that has that impacted you? Did you have to mind yourself a bit more, and and uh, and did you fall prey to a lot of the same ups and downs that a lot of people would have over the pandemic? I I had swings, but but I've. I've found ways of managing uh, 
much better than I did in the past. In, in the past, my way of managing, as it is for so many who, especially if you've not been diagnosed, who find their mood swinging, is to manage it with drugs and alcohol, to be perfectly frank. I mean, mm. because they can at least guarantee you feel something in some way that you've planned rather than your brain just making you feel you know, terrible or weirdly manically uh, excited, which is what bipolar disorder, which is what I have, does. It can elevate you to the highest kind of mania or it can drop you to the lowest form of depression. And you never know when it's coming and you never know when it's going to go or how long it's going to last. And you, It's not under your control exactly. Um, so you reach out for things that you, you know, that you think will control it, but it, that it just gets worse. So that was when it was at, it's worst. It was because I was drinking too much and yeah. drugs and things like that. But that, fortunately, I don't do. Um, I still have a glass of wine and things, but I don't, you know, drink to to feel numb and and so on. And I do all these things that you know, sound so small, like walking every morning and to, trying to, you know, attend to my diet and my yeah. gut, all those sort of things, and 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 not put myself under so much pressure. And above all, I, you know. Seven years ago, almost seven years ago in January, um, I got married, and that has made my life so much happier and stabler, and and profoundly changed the, the way I think about myself and uh, my future, and all the things that you know mental health can get you in a spin about. But it you know it it doesn't mean it's over. It's a bit it's a chronic condition, as doctors say. That's to say, like asthma or diabetes or something. It's you learn to live with it and manage yeah. it. Yeah. You're an asthma. I also am. You carry your inhaler around with you at all times, and you start to learn what not to eat or what not to inhale around you, you know, whatever. Yeah. You yeah. know what your allergies are, and so you're controlling your asthma better. I'm oh, interested yeah. what you say about that getting married and that, that the stability of that, is it, and or just love? I think it's love, you know. Yeah. For me, it, it, it is, and of course, I, I would. I know there are a lot of, you know, people who find marriage very tense, and it can often make things, you know, can make things harder. Especially if you're holed up with the same person for a year of lockdown. <laughs> Some people may have found that difficult, and I know there's been a disturbing rise in domestic violence and things like that. So of course, it isn't a panacea, and I can't claim that. But I, I, I can only really claim that I'm very lucky, and that for me, it has. Been Provided a stability and a peace, and you know, my husband is a very serene sort of person. He doesn't get overexcited about things, and he's very understanding and patient, and uh, all those good qualities. And so, has, so he, has he been the Zen factor in, in in during lockdowns and everything else uh, like that? Yes, I think a lot of it. Yes, yeah. and also the fact that unlike other, you know actor friends of mine who, who work in musical theatre or theatre generally, um, I've you know, had terrific time to do, I think, 23 or 4 audiobooks I did during lockdown. I have a little sound booth, a little studio set up in my house, and so I was able to do all these audiobooks, uh, um, 15 P.G. Woodhouse's and um, some George Orwell and uh, J.K. Rowling's new Ichabog one and a few, you know, so, mm. so that and uh, other... Uh, you know, animation voices and and writing, like, including this book, of course. Mm -hmm. So, so that meant that, unlike so many others, I I was able to feel fulfilled and busy and not 
kind of like a racing engine whose wheels won't turn, you know? It's so, so I was, in that sense, so much luckier than many others, especially in the hospitality and entertainment professions. Where absolutely, absolutely. Ambition. Oh, I mean, there was a young fellow who won MasterChef, and he and his girlfriend had, had just raised all the money to open a new restaurant that was going to open in mid-March in, tw- in, tw- in, in 2020, you know? So, I mean... Yeah. Millions of stories like that around the world. Absolutely, and then and kids as well, Stephen, who are maybe at a particular point where they have a momentum like he did, and that and they then, don't know if they'll get that moment back again. I know it's yeah, it's very, very tough. Listen, really. can we just assure people because I think we don't want to ruin all the the PG Woodhouse audio books. Would you just assure people that you were dressed up to the nines in your booth while you record the audio books? They don't <laughs> want to think of you there in a ratty old tracksuit bottoms doing it. At the absolute worst, I would come down in a glorious silk new and lingwood dressing gown with a cup of coffee and do the first two chapters. Then I would go up and have a shower and do my teeth and then come down. Of course exquisitely dressed to do the remaining chapters excellent that that that's all the image people need in their heads now <laughs> so listen um plans for christmas do you do christmas at your house and have people around or or do you get away from it all or what do you do oh, i well we will be getting away from it all actually because my husband is currently at a, we have a little place in um in uh, Hollywood, in Los Angeles, and uh, uh, we're, we're going to Christmas there. We've got a lot of English friends out there at the moment. Oh, stop! You're making me sick. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Blue skies and endless sunshine, and yes, I know. Yeah. Um, I'm sure something will go horribly wrong, and I won't be able to go out there because this new variant might stop that sort of travel. So I'm, I'm sort of slightly half expecting uh, to, you know, change plans. Well, look, fingers crossed and we hope not. Um, Stephen, it was lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. And Fry's Ties is available in hardback, ebook, and also you've done an audio book of it that you recorded yourself as well, haven't you? In in full military regalia. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, listen, have a great Christmas, Stephen, uh, in LA. I'm I'm, I'm not bitter. And, uh, (laughs) And of course, you know what everyone's going to give you for Christmas now, don't you? I do. It's inevitable. <laughs> yeah. like well, there'll, there'll be another book <laughs> next year. My next book is going to be on whiskies of the world. <laughs> okay. Put that out there now. Stephen Fry, thank you so much. Thank you, Brendan. Bye-bye.